I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Katie Parla back on the show of Katie Parla's Istanbul, the app online that you can find in the iTunes store. Hello, how are you? I'm so good. Thanks for having me back. Very nice to see you again. So you said some wise words the last time we had you here, especially regarding Turkey and Istanbul, when you basically predicted that there might be a coup in the last <laughs> interview. <was> <laughs> Subsequently, there was. I don't know if you knew something the rest of us didn't. <laughs> but uh, uh, It does seem like there's been a lot of political turbulence in Turkey, and some of it has reflected into the wine zone as well. And you've Absolutely. traveled there quite a bit and written numerous articles for numerous publications about Istanbul and Turkish wines. And then also you have a lot of experience in other countries like Italy, which I think you're most well known for. So welcome back. And what's going on with Turkey? Well, there's so much happening in Turkey right now. I mean, when I open Twitter or read any publication, you see a new major shift or battle today. A member of parliament was attacked in the parliament and had his nose broken over a, a parliamentary discussion, which might not seem like it's related to wine. But the current political party that's in power, the AK party, which is led by Erdogan, who's the president, former prime minister, they want to shift power away from a sort of parliamentary system towards a presidential system, which would give this very powerful anti-wine person a lot more power than he already has. And considering that Erdogan and his party, by many accounts, are considered a big threat to free choice when it comes to drinking, among other things, this has been really devastating and will continue to be really devastating for domestic wine production and consumption in Turkey. There's this really kind of amazing hypocrisy to the laws that the AK Party has introduced in order to limit local wine consumption. They give these huge grants and loans to Turkish vineyards to promote their products abroad. So they don't want Turks drinking the wine, but they do want the revenue that comes with exports. And I think we can talk at length about Erdogan and all of the bizarre hypocrisies that he stands for, but it's kind of amazing that you know, this former Istanbul political figure, prime minister, now president, can impact the wine industry through very specific choices and through propaganda, of course. With the violence in the city and in the country, that has to lead to less tourism and then 
thus less foreigners drinking wine. In Absolutely. If you think that in Turkey, the per capita annual consumption of alcohol, including rucka and beer, is only about 1.6 liters per person. I mean, that's like almost no booze. So Turkey does depend on a lot of foreigners consuming wine in the main consumption areas, which are Istanbul, um, which sees millions and millions of visitors every year to its hotels, cafes, bars, and restaurants, the Aegean coast. So imagine all those like, you know, beautiful postcard worthy shots that you may have seen of friends on holiday and like Bodrum and places like that. And then to the Mediterranean coast, or sort of southwestern Mediterranean coast, which sees a tremendous amount of Russian tourism. And Russian tourists consume a lot of wine and a lot of vodka. And due to the pretty rampant bootleg booze industry, a lot of fake alcohol. So there is a lot of black market booze. A lot. And estimates really vary. Uh, some experts think that about 30% of the alcohol that's sold in Turkey is counterfeit. That probably increased after 2013 when they raised taxes on distillates and alcoholic beverage in general quite a bit. For sure. You know, Turkey has a pretty long border. There's a lot of Russian investment and a lot of Russian bootlegging happens. And although there are laws against this, there aren't quite enough people enforcing those laws to root out all of these bootleggers, which, I mean, not only do they not pay into the tax system, which is sort of critical for the maintenance of Turkey, its infrastructure, etc., um, they sometimes poison people. In a famous 2011 event, five Russian tourists and about 20 people died after drinking sort of tainted booze on a booze cruise which is, I think a booze cruise is probably like the opposite of your sort of classic Turkish outing. So you have this like incredible tension between mainstream Turkish culture, most people don't drink at all, maybe 1%, up to 2% of the population drinks on a regular basis, whereas probably close to 100% of the Western and Eurasian tourists are drinking. It's an interesting experience when you go to the Aegean coast or even to a famous conservative, but also wine producing region like Cappadocia. And the locals might be harvesting grapes, working at vineyards, but they're not tasting the wines. They're not familiar with the wines and they're not interested in adopting this culture because it is against their religious faith. So do you see a wine culture in Turkey then? Do people go to restaurants and drink wine or even alcohol with food on a regular basis? Absolutely. In the consumption capitals, especially along the coastal regions in the summertime and in Istanbul year-round. Not only do you have foreign visitors, but you also have a local secular community of people that drinks alcohol. And I know that you visited Turkey, so you may have gone to a mehane, which is sort of like a tavern that serves meze. Perhaps you strolled along the Golden Horn and saw some of the fish restaurants. That's where you might encounter people drinking rucka with seafood. And whether it's a mehane... So imagine like those places that have those huge carriages with the plated meze or fish restaurants, which serve fish braised in olive oil or grilled or fried. Those places are your sort of classic Istanbul drinking places. So that's where a local or visitor would go and have either rucka or wine with their fish or with their vegetal starters. So you definitely see wine consumption. I think wine culture is a little bit different. There are certain parts of Istanbul, especially the Beyoğlu district. So imagine where the Galata Tower is and where Istiklal Jadisi climbs up towards Taksim. That whole area was very culturally European. It was a place where decades ago you would have heard a lot of French being spoken by Turks on the street. And it's where a lot of the Greek and Albanian-owned 
taverns used to be. So there was a wine culture there historically. You do find some of the larger wine bars. The most famous is probably Sensus at the base of the Galata Tower, which has hundreds of Turkish wines. But, you know, you always find, again, the sort of tension between the presence of wines. Clearly, there are lots of people making wine in Turkey, people who want to drink great wine in Turkey, but often the service staff that you encounter has never tasted the wines, isn't really educated about the wines, which I think really inhibits a growing of the wine culture. Last time you were here, you spoke at length about how the regional cuisines of Turkey are quite diverse and rival Italy or even pass it in terms of just the amount of regionality to the cuisine. And so do you see different drinking and alcoholic beverage traditions in different parts of Turkey that complement that? Or is it somewhat uniform? Certainly. And, you know, to speak to that point, when I first moved to Italy 14 years ago, I was so impressed by all like the biodiversity and the regional cuisines and sub-regional cuisines. Uh, And then I started visiting Turkey and I was like, Italy seems so tiny in comparison. And the various microclimates, the isolated rural regions of Turkey often have their own cuisines that vary from, you know, the neighboring hilltops. The drinking culture is somewhat regionally based. And I'm thinking particularly about the areas around Izmir, which is another massive city. You know, the island of Bozjada, vacation destinations for wealthy, secular, Western-educated people from Ankara, the capital, and Istanbul, the cultural capital, where wine really is present thanks to the Greek origins of those areas' cultures. And when you visit Bozjada, which I recommend everyone does at least once in his or her life, there are these really spectacular rolling hills that are subjected to really severe winds. It's a very strange terrain, a very beautiful terrain. And it's an island where there still are some ethnically Greek people making wines. And then a lot of sort of wealthy Turkish businessmen who have opened vineyards and even an Austrian family where they grow the indigenous chavush grape and make really, really lovely wines where in a way you sort of feel like you would never feel threatened drinking in public there. All of the taverns have outdoor seating where you can freely drink wine and raka in public. And they even, at times, though I won't name names, violate the laws which prohibit promotion of wine drinking or alcohol drinking. Like, theoretically, you're not supposed to have any alcohol brands displayed or any wine bottles or rucka bottles visible from the street level. So uh, it really feels, feels like its own independent culture. Meanwhile, go to a place like Konya, which is very, very conservative, or to Vana, the far eastern part of Turkey on the border of Iran or Iraq, and you'll find most restaurants don't serve alcohol. The vast majority don't. Some hotels are completely dry. And that is actually becoming more of a case in Istanbul, as some business owners in Istanbul seek clientele that is more interested in conservative hospitality rather than one that you might encounter in some of the sort of five-star luxury hotels which seek to please the desires of every visitor from the West. So specifically saying we want a Muslim audience who doesn't drink at this resort or in this hotel and we're not going to offer any alcohol at all. Absolutely. And they'll feel more comfortable. Yes. Yeah. And I've seen that happening a lot along the Bosphorus, which is this spectacularly picturesque stretch of water that connects the Black Sea and the Sea of Marmara. And there are a number of um, well, they used to be little villages like Ortake and Arnavutkai and Bebek that sort of led north from the center of Istanbul up the Bosphorus. Now they're fully incorporated into the vast and dense metropolitan area of Istanbul. But the 
Bosphorus side cafes used to be big drinking destinations and the Reina Club, which was recently targeted in that horrific terror attack, is just one of those places where alcohol drinking Turks would go out and party, definitely binge drink, lots of hard alcohol and to a lesser extent wine in those types of venues. But the cafes along the Bosphorus are becoming increasingly more interested in attracting not even necessarily just a Turkish conservative clientele, but also a, a clientele of tourists and new residents coming from the Arabic world. Is the environment now indicating that people are going to be in the major metropolitan areas drinking privately in homes as opposed to in the public? I mean, I've seen a lot of that. And because the cost of wine and other alcoholic beverages increases significantly, you know, from year to year. And since Erdogan and his party came to power, there's been a huge increase in the price of a liter of Rucka or a bottle of wine just due to taxation. And it's almost for an elite class. Drinking alcohol is certainly a, an endeavor of luxury. So for even an elite class, they sort of need to pool resources. And if you want to go out and party and have bottles at bars or cafes or restaurants, there's going to be an added service price to that. Whereas if you're drinking at home and spending time with friends, you don't have the anxiety of drinking in a place that's pretty hostile to drinking in general. The place is hostile to drinking, but the country makes a lot of grapes every year. So what happens? A lot of the grapes actually get turned into raisins. <laughs> and the wine that is produced, somewhere around like 160 million liters a year, a lot is exported. There's some domestic consumption, especially in the resort districts and the major cities. But Turkey exports a tremendous amount of wine to Belgium, to the Northern Republic of Cyprus. So if you imagine the island of Cyprus is more or less divided in half between North and South, and the Northern part of the island, the Turkish part of the island is actually quite secular, and for a large number of people, anti-Erdogan and AK Party. Um, they drink a lot of wine there. And Germany and the UK have become growing markets. And especially since the 2013 alcohol laws prohibited local Turkish promotion of wine within the country, there have been government as well as vineyard-driven promotions abroad to increase exports. And you know, Erdogan and his party are very economically driven people. They're interested in revenue. As I mentioned before, there's like irony that the AK party is promoting the foreign promotion of wines. And the Turkish government wants to benefit from the revenue that comes from export. So they promote wine publicity abroad. It's illegal for a vineyard to promote their vineyard. So the Turkish government does not want you to go to a vineyard and have a tasting. They really don't even want vineyards to have websites. And you know, I visited Eliza in the sort of southeastern Anatolia and went to a, a vineyard just one month after the 2013 laws were passed. They had to take their website down. I couldn't put any social media with geotags or links saying that I was at the vineyard, exploring the vineyards or tasting the wines because that was considered a violation of the law. So the idea of enotourism in Turkey has not been developed at all. It will not be developed, I don't think. And Maybe the places that you find a little bit of it are in Cappadocia, where so much of the revenue is based on foreign visitors. And as you're visiting like Gurame and Uchisad and all of the famous towns out there, it's sort of natural that you would go to a vineyard also. 
And, you know, the Ak Party has argued that not that many people here drink. It shouldn't really affect anyone. And if you want to live a pure life, then grow grapes. Go for it. But make raisins or make grape molasses. So I wouldn't say that there was a huge wine industry before the Ak Party came to power. I would say that there were some small pockets of wine production, mainly in the areas that you might call Thrace today. So like the Bulgarian border around the Sea of Marmara. So think west of Istanbul, the European parts of Turkey. And there certainly was some wine production along the Aegean coast. Izmir had a big wine production. But until pretty recently, there was a government monopoly that controlled wine and beer and rucka production. So after the creation of modern Turkey, so I think 1923, the government took over a company called Tekel. This huge government monopoly produced the vast majority of alcohol. Slowly, independent, privately owned companies entered into the market. But until I think 08, when they were sold to British American Tobacco, Tekel was the number one producer of Rucka's most tobacco and wine as well. From this distance, I often think of Rucka as like a national drink of Turkey, mm-hmm. but it, then it sounds like people aren't really drinking it much anymore. It is both the national drink of Turkey and consumed by almost no one. <laughs> now, you wouldn't know it if you went to some of the tourist destinations in Turkey, but a very small percentage of Turks drink, and those who do would drink Rucka in certain situations. It's not something that you sip as an aperitif as you might in some other cultures um, or the sort of similar distillates that you might find in other cultures. It's consumed with food, usually fish, usually meze, whereas uh, beer is, by volume, far more popular beverage. Oh, yeah? By far, absolutely. I guess it's true everywhere, huh? Yeah, I mean, beer's delicious. Um, and FS is the sort of dominant brand, the classic Turkish pilsner. But you're supposed to water down rucka, right? Or you is that not true as well? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, when you go out to drink, they'll brag and be like, oh, I don't put water in, in it. And, you know, as you go through the night, you see they're watering down their ruck. It's a very, very strong, like 80 to 100 proof, depending on the brand, beverage. And even if you're drinking with food, you get blackout drunk pretty fast. (laughs) Not that I'm speaking from experience. And not only do I encourage a visit to Bozjada for the wine culture, I I would also recommend that listeners go to Istanbul and visit Beolu and the famous taverns there and see how rucka is a part of the meal that is inextricably linked to that particular neighborhood's culture. You know, the Rukka consumption in that part of Istanbul in a, in a major way comes in in like the 18th and 19th centuries as some of the aristocracy of the Ottoman government and so forth started to sort of loosen their rules and ignore some of the religious requirements of Islam and start going to like the Greek and Albanian run taverns. Those guys were drinking wine. As more and more members of the Ottoman aristocracy started frequenting these places, Rukka became a more dominant feature there, and it's held on. It's a quite historic place to drink Rukka, and also happens to be a place where you find a lot of wine. And it's different than the Greek version, right? The Raki, it's a different flavoring? Exactly. So Raki is R-A-K-I. That's the Greek version of grappa. Whereas like Uzo is more like Rukka, R-A-K. I with no dot, that's the Turkish beverage, the anise-flavored distillate. And is there other beverages that sort of have taken the place of that one in the culture besides beer that maybe I'm not thinking about? Like, do people go and drink tea or do people go and drink other warm beverages? Or what is it that people drink if they're not drinking alcohol? Coffee and tea. 
the sort of really strongly flavored, very bitter tea or Turkish style coffee is still very prevalent. There are cafes that cater specifically to those beverages. And if you do happen to go to one of the dry cafes along the Bosphorus or any number of other neighborhoods in Istanbul, you'll find people drinking Coca-Cola, tea, coffee, both Turkish as well as what you might call Americano. There's a little bit of like a third wave coffee thing happening in Istanbul right now. It's a luxury item too. So it's one of those things that remains in the category of the same consumers as wine and other alcohol drinkers. And you find them in the fancy districts. But there's some really, really delicious coffee. A lot of times here we've said it's a strongly flavored beverage, whether it's a tea or it's coffee or it's rucka, it has a real noticeable character. Does that follow through for the wines as well? Or is that just an overstatement? To some extent, especially in the category of red grapes, you do find a lot of the grapes that are the most commercially viable tend to be like very tannic, have extreme flavors, or are um, you know vinified in a way to accentuate those characteristics. And when you sip a Turkish tea, it is sometimes very astringent. It's an aggressive flavor. And you know, while there certainly are examples of Turkish beverages and Turkish foods that have nuance and subtlety, a lot of the popular wines are really, really bold and big. And those are the ones drunk there or here uh, or somewhere else? Those are the ones that are consumed in Turkey and the ones that are exported too. And do you think that there's something in the cuisine that's pulling that out? Like, is there some synergy there? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the sort of spiced notes of certain regional cuisines ask for a properly paired wine or a lot of the grilled meats um, with tomato-based sauces and things really benefit from pairing certain types of red wines made from indigenous grapes, especially those from central Anatolia like Boazgere um, or Okuskuzu. How does it break down on grape varieties? Is there more of an interest in indigenous grapes or is it more about international grape varieties? Or There's definitely a thirst for indigenous grape varieties and from the far western part of Turkey all the way to the east, you find some, very few, um, proportionally speaking, of the 1,200 native varieties are are cultivated and vinified. Now, there are certainly French varieties that are grown, especially on the Aegean coast, um, and that speaks to two factors. Francophilia, which has been a feature of Turkish culture, especially aristocratic culture dating back to the 18th century, and the fact that as Turkey was becoming a, a more secular nation in the 1920s. It was customary for people to go travel and do their grand tour and then come back, often influenced by the French varieties that they had encountered abroad, some even working in vineyards and coming back to Turkey to found their own. Now, the native varieties are really super interesting, like things that you can't obviously find elsewhere. And one of my favorite Turkish grape varieties is Okuzguzu, means bullseye. Um, and it grows in Eliza and the surrounding areas. So imagine you're sort of just north of eastern Syria. You're in these hills that undulate down towards a valley where the Euphrates River flows. I mean, the history of this area is just so mind-boggling. According to biblical tradition, Noah planted vines there after the flood. I mean, it's kind of intense if you think about it. And not so far from you know the Georgian border and that of Iran and Iraq as well. That's the Mount Ararat area? Exactly, yeah. So we're in sort of southeastern Anatolia. Um, now, Okuzguzu is a red grape variety. 
Um, this is one of those red grapes that when transformed into wine, I'd love to pair it with kebab, various varieties, all sorts of grilled meats. So Oku's Guzu is known for its high acidity. Um, it has a lot of like red fruit in it, herbal notes like mint, a little bit of pininess at times, strawberry, and it's often vinified in a way that sort of intensifies the acidity and tannin. Because that palate profile and kind of style reminds me of Saparavi, maybe correctly or incorrectly, I'm not sure, but that kind of like Georgian, Russian style of red wine, sometimes really abrasively acidic. Yeah. And then sometimes it's a little sweet to polish that off. Or is it somewhat like that? I find or? a lot of similarities. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And bracing acidity or aggressive tannin is not in those wine production areas seen as um, a defect, but an expression of the grape. So Oku's Gazoo grows in the same area um, as Boazkere, which literally means like throat burner. It has so much tan and it's got like so much going on and it can feel really aggressive in its flavor profile, which isn't to everyone's liking, of course, but uh, you know, when you're out in the eastern part of of Anatolia, there's nothing better than sipping some Boaz Kide with like a, imagine like a whole lamb torso that's been filled with rice and the lamb's chopped organs and just been like roasted. It's the most delicious combination that you can imagine. Not something you want to like crack open and sip over, you know, conversation with friends. It's something that really, really begs for food. So are there wines that are more just like easy quaffers from Turkey, from indigenous grape varieties or? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a grape called Kalkadasa, which is pretty high acid, uh, but ends up becoming quite balanced when it's transformed into rosés. And it, it's mostly turned into rosé. It's got like very peachy, like white ripe fruit flavors and aromas. That's something that you would sip while, you know, sitting on a beach uh, on the Aegean coast. Um, the Sultania grape, which is a white grape, pairs perfectly with like a light aperitivo spread. It's great with seafood. It's like very fresh, aromatic. And the Sultania grape grows in uh, Western Anatolia. So think like sort of Mediterranean, lower Aegean region. And it is super simple, not age worthy, but like very quaffable. What about international varieties and indigenous varieties together? Do you see some combinations there or is it mostly people either do indigenous or people do international or? There definitely are some examples where you find white indigenous grapes um, like Emir or Sultania mixed with Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. But I would say generally speaking, it depends on the vineyard and it depends on the sort of production of that vineyard. It's not unusual for a vineyard to produce like 30 wines or 50 wines. It always shocks me when I go, when I go to a vineyard and they're like, we're a boutique vineyard and we make 14 million bottles of wine a year. Uh, I'm always like, well, that feels like it's a lot of wine, but... And what they're really saying is we don't have a website. <laughs> so that's why we're boutique. Yeah. The, um, so you can find wines that are produced for let's say a Turkish wine that's produced for Belgian export, that's going to have a higher probability of containing international varieties. Because in Belgium, it's really hard for people to pronounce Okus Gazoo or Boazkere or Chavush or what have you. Um, I think so anywhere I think, it's, it's eh, that's really true. hard. Touché. It's really hard in New York as well. <laughs> that is accurate. Um, but, you know, in, in Turkey, I would say in the past like five to ten years in particular, 
people are interested in indigenous, not just grapes and the wines they make, but foods. Um, slow food has been uh, a really powerful feature of, of transforming some local food cultures. And, you know, food and wine culture, even in Turkey, go hand in hand to some extent. The people who participate in this various slow food chapters in Convivia are wealthy, educated people, generally. They're people who drink. So I think that there's definitely, in Turkey, a, a great interest of drinking these indigenous grapes, many of which are being discovered for the first time or rediscovered after, you know, maybe th thousands of years. <laughs> So what is the history of wine in Turkey like going back? I mean, even into ancient times, how does it sort out that we got to this place where we are today? It's so fascinating. What I love about Turkey is what attracted me to Italy, actually. I was like, this place is so old. And then I go to Turkey. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so much older. What's happening? Um, so, did, by the way, <laughs> did you see the, oh, sorry to interrupt. Did you see the Louis C.K. where the girl's really attracted to old dudes? And so she goes up to him <laughs> after the show and she's like, you're so old. I love it. <laughs> So, sorry. It's it's literally one of the funniest Louis C.K. Uh, sketches I've ever Let's seen. Keep it it's in. so funny. Please please continue. So, um the um Oh, when you go to like Cappadocia, Central Anatolia, Konya, these areas in in the center of the country, those were settled by Hittites in pre-Greco-Roman times. So, grapes were coming from Georgia and Eastern Anatolia, and then being planted through the Aegean, which then allowed them to leap over to Greece and spread into Europe. So, I mean, there was a millennial wine production. They produced wine for thousands and thousands of years in Turkey before the Romans even entered into the equation. And then after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, oh, I love talking about this. It's so nerdy. Um, Constantine, well, before the fall of the Western Roman Empire, actually, Constantine chose Byzantium as his capital. So imagine this like city on the Bosphorus called Byzantium. He calls it New Rome. It becomes called Constantinople. And from about 315 until 1453, that part of Turkey was essentially a Greek place. They called themselves Romans because they consider themselves the inheritors of a Roman tradition. And to this day, like the word for Byzantine Greek people in Turkish is Rum. So the idea that like until 1453, there would have been wine consumed by the imperial court for pleasure and by Christians for Eucharistic purposes. That would have been sort of dominant wine consumption pattern. There was also a vibrant Jewish community, um, which also had its sacramental wine use. Um, in about the 11th century, the Turks, who are based in Anatolia, convert to Islam. And consequently, their approach to alcohol completely changes. And they depending on who's in power and who's interpreting like Quranic scripture, sometimes alcohol is consumed and sometimes it's not at all. There are some periods in which um, clerics find loopholes in which like rukka isn't explicitly named as a prohibited beverage, therefore it can be consumed. There's a lot of like gray area. But in any event, we see towards the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, as there's a greater influence by British and French colonial powers and um, the arrival of foreigners from abroad, wine consumption increases. But in the 20th century, it sees a pretty sharp decline, particularly after the Christian populations, Greek and Jewish in particular, and Armenian, are subjected to horrible atrocities between you know, genocide and simply being displaced to new 
countries. So I think the sort of political and viticulture history of, of Turkey are really, really closely bonded. Then they go through a period of time of, of kind of waves where you have a more liberal, more Western-leaning sultan in charge for a while, and he's uh, more open to wine or to liquor consumption, and then followed by like a repressive wave where kind of like a, a Cromwell-esque figure comes up and is more fundamentalist than in the view. Is that correct? Or Sure. Yeah, and you see this manifest not just in food and beverage culture, but also in artwork. I mean, there are periods in which you know, Venetians would have been welcomed at the Ottoman court and their art and cuisine and culture would have influenced the Ottoman court in some small way. It's, it's kind of spectacular to, to think um, about this 16th and 17th century exchange that was going on. So what we're seeing right now, it's a continuation of a historical up and down for alcohol in this country. I mean, for the sake of freedom-loving people and journalists and Kurds and all sorts of ethnic minorities, I hope that there is an, the pendulum swings in the opposite direction at some point. I mean, with every passing headline, with every passing year, Erdogan and, and the Turkish government seem to be less and less interested in liberal democracy, <laughs> understatement. And so I fear that it will be a long time before we return to the sort of heyday. And it's, it wasn't that long ago. Even when AK Party was in power, like five, ten years ago, there was this great hope amongst Turkish winemakers that you know they could really make a go of it. But then with the increasing taxes on wine, it became completely impossible for a small business to thrive. So consequently, there was the need to either bring on external investment from abroad or pack it in or just commit to mass production. So it's, it's a really tense time for winemakers. And it sounds like a lot of this production has often been associated with foreigners, whether it be Greeks or with uh, Armenians or with Jewish people. It sounds sure. like a lot of what was happening were people who were not Turkish making wine, who maybe worked for Turkish people and through some sort of distance land owning ownership or something like that. And sure. some of the historical zones for wine production, like Thrace and then the area of the Aegean, are influenced in different directions by who was originally there. It sounds like, right? Totally yeah. accurate. So in terms of the modern Turkish Republic that gets founded in the 1920s, what happens in terms of wine reproduction since the founding of that? You discussed well what happened in ancient times and then what happened in the Middle Ages, but from the 1920s, what goes on with the founding of wineries and wine reproduction within greater Turkey? The wine production of Turkey was certainly dominated by the state monopoly for a long time. Um, although there was the entry of, of some smaller independent producers in the later part of the 20th century. And now we're, I think, at about maybe 300 vineyards in the whole country, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. Is that the same as a producer or is that different? Actually, that's a really good point to bring up. To say that there are 300 vineyards would be an understatement because it's not uncommon for a producer to have vineyards all over the country. So they might have their headquarters in Ankara, but they've got vineyards in like Cappadocia and Izmir. Is it also that they're blending across regions or are they regionally not necessarily, specific bottles? Not necessarily. There just isn't a tradition. There isn't a tradition of geographical denominations, which I think actually makes drinking wine in Turkey a little bit more complicated because at times you don't know exactly where the grapes are coming from and 
Um, there are lots of messages on the label, like alcohol's not your friend, but not necessarily a lot of geographical information to sort of connect you to the territory from which the grapes come. I mean, I guess if you're not going to promote enotourism, why would you promote a region, right? Totally. So I guess it probably goes without saying that there's not famous crews. It sounds like it's a more grape variety focused culture rather than a, a, a actual specific vineyard focused culture. Is I that, think that's accurate. But at the same time, it does seem like there's vast differences in terms of Turkey. You know, one part's sandy, one part's continental climate, one part's mm-hmm. next to the sea and moderated. One, you know, so sure seems like there's a lot of elevation changes. And totally. I mean, terroir should be an important conversation when you're talking about Turkish wines because of that huge and really sort of shocking difference in microclimates and terrain. But it's not it's not a conversation that comes up. And I think you know, as or if the Turkish wine exports continue to become you know, a, a more significant part of foreign markets, then those conversations will start to be be brought up and drinkers of Turkish wine abroad will ask those questions and vineyards will finally be able to sort of give those answers. But right now, um, the hurdle is sort of getting the wine outside of Turkey, selling it to someone who can pair it properly at a restaurant or price it properly for retail. So I think it's part of this whole sort of very nascent commercial nature of of Turkish wines. But there has to be some advantages to getting the wine out of Turkey when a lot of people in Turkey can't afford the wine. Oh, absolutely. In Turkey, it's not unusual to find a bottle of wine for like 60 lira or 120 lira, and the average income is 1400 lira a month. So, like, do you want to spend 4% or 8% of your income on one bottle? That's not something that most consumers um, would buy into. Getting it over the border for sure is is important, and it's also, as I mentioned, a priority of the government. Is there a potential for really high quality, or is it mostly going to be a volume business? I mean, I think that there is some potential for quality, and I keep going back to the the Kyra vineyard of Eliza or Corvus from Bozjada. I mean, I think that there's definitely potential for age-worthy wines. Um, I think when you know some of these vineyards sort of let go of the idea that your finest wine has to spend a lot of time in Barrique, um, that it has to take on all sorts of pretty conventional flavor profiles, um, that we're going to be seeing some really interesting products. I mean, wine production like doubled in the aughts. So you've got a lot of mass production with these small examples of boutique production throughout the country. I really have high hopes that the Turkish government's emphasis on foreign export is going to lead to an overall quality increase a lot of Turkish wines like totally somewhat drinkable not so drinkable some of it's like pretty good some of it's awful and some of it is like really nice um so like have you had that moment where you were drinking a Turkish wine and said wow ooh, really good like yeah does that exist That's yeah out and there? I think yeah for sure and I think a lot of the um, a lot of the situations in which I drink wine in Turkey which is really almost exclusively in the summertime you know I was drinking like a beautiful Corvus Rosé or a red wine from Amadeus made from the Kuntra grape um, with some kebab. Those are really wonderful experiences. But to sort of speak to the idea of quality, the government, again, they're like so intent on selling abroad. Um, they've created this seal of quality called Turk quality. I'm not even really positive what their criteria are, um, but they're interested in creating this anglicized mark of quality for their exports only. So this Turk quality seal does not 
get put on local bottles. We've talked about how there are waves and cycles within Turkey for more supportive wineries and less supportive wineries. So what are the historical periods of time where wineries were founded? Like at what age are some of these wineries have, is -hmm. there a collection of somebody who has 20, 30, 50 years of experience working in Turkey today or? Although there was the government monopoly, there are historic vineyards that were founded at about the same time as uh, Tekel. So in the twenties? Yeah. So in the 1920s, Deluca was uh, founded. Um, So was, Cavaclidide, Sevelen dates to the 1940s, and Vincara to the 60s. And then we've had a a nice boom in the aughts as wine production grew and as sort of the local economies in central Anatolia and southeast and to a much larger extent in the Thracian areas started to invest in, in wine production. And what about foreign consultants? Have we seen waves where those have either come or gone or been encouraged or been expelled? Foreign involvement in the Turkish wine industry is is historic. Whether it's like Turk going abroad and being influenced and coming back to make wines that they encountered abroad or foreign people coming in to consult. Um, so like Stefan Derencourt works with Kavaklidere um, and then Kaira, uh, that place I keep referencing in Eliza, southeastern Anatolia, is partnered with Daniel McDonnell, who works as a consultant, particularly as the vineyard relates to U.S. export. What are the things that you as a consumer would like to see? I mean, you travel to Istanbul a lot. Now, besides the government restrictions, I just mean in like, in terms of wines that you might be interested in, what do you think would make sense to have? It would be wonderful if there was less chemical intervention in the various stages of wine production, um, if barrique was used more sparingly. And I think that, you know, the thing that is universal, whether you're on an island or a hotel or wherever, is that wine training is almost non-existent. And so it's very difficult to navigate the huge gamut of Turkish wines without a little bit of curation. Um, And so with, you know, 300 vineyards, but sort of the largest vineyards being the most dominant. I'm always curious to try new things, but because wine is so expensive, investing in a bottle from a place I'm not really familiar with, their techniques are unknown to me. I'm, I'm, I'm always really hesitant, um, which is why um, it's always really fun to travel to places and talk your way into a vineyard, <laughs> um, which isn't always so easy because people are afraid of getting in trouble for promote, promoting. But, uh, but yeah, and I, I, so I think those are the features that I think would make Turkish wine more accessible to me as a lover of Turkey and, and Turkish wine and to really all consumers. And what are the regions like if I were going to mm-hmm. go travel? What are the places that I would find maybe the most interesting as, a, as someone who's really into wine? If you're really into wine and you want to get the sort of full, um, the full wine drinking experience that covers like the history, the culture, indigenous grapes, um, an appreciation for wine and some really delicious food to pair it with. Bozjada is amazing. And this is not far from Gallipoli. Um, it's on the Aegean coast and it's like the Trojan horse is like not far from there either. It's kind of amazing. And Bozjada has Corvus vineyard, Amadeus vineyard, uh, and several other sort of smaller smaller vineyards that do 
really delicious wines. They even have wine shops where you can do proper tasting. They have a, I suppose, a license that permits them to do that. Um, as on-site vineyard tastings are prohibited. And though, you know, that island is just so, so special, like so easy to navigate on bicycle and you can drink the wines in the sort of tasting rooms of these shops or at the various Mehane tavern-like spots. Really, really delicious fish. And then there are a couple of um, mainly, I would say the, the restaurant owners there are people from Istanbul with or without restaurant experience that are obsessed with the island, which feels like very Greek in a lot of ways, architecturally in particular, um, who want a sort of cultured wine list and may have you know, a few things from France, but really do focus on the local wine producers. There's a, there's a really wonderful sort of collaboration between the restaurant owners and the vineyard owners to get those local products out there. So basically, the places with more Greek influence have what sounds like more of a wine culture. For sure. Whereas you have cool vineyards elsewhere, but you know the people who are working in the cellars and picking the grapes and living in the surrounding areas aren't drinking the wines. Have you had a chance to tour vineyards? Like, how are there things you noticed about how things are trained or not trained or what kind of material it is or how old vines are that really stood out for you? I think what really, the fact that you can stroll through these quite like sandy hills um, and have a view over the Euphrates river basin to me, like sort of brings it all home. And when you you know, look in 360 degrees, you see like mountains in the distance and like there are no buildings, there are no homes. You just have like these vines isolated, very young vines Um I think it's sort of like a metaphor for the Turkish wine industry. In a way, you're surrounded by like all these geographical obstacles. And there's this sort of, I don't even know if there's like a real energy there. There's a very earnest desire on the part of the vineyard owners to actually like make a go of it. And I think um, for all of the vineyards that I visited, there's a bit of a hopelessness as well. Because people are eager to share what they're doing. They love the idea of, you know, being able to transform indigenous grapes into uh, into this historic beverage. But they're doing it with the knowledge that the local population will not approve of it. Katie Parla realizes that wine can be brought all the way home in Turkey and is hoping that that will become a realization for more and more people going forward even though there are significant obstacles. Thank you very much for being here today. Such a pleasure. Katie Parla of Katie Parla's Istanbul, which is available in the app stores, and also Katie Parla's Rome, which is one of my favorite go-to references on that city's dining. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.